Goblins, legendary creatures that most only encounter in folklore or fairy tales. But, do these mischievous beings still exist? Are the footprints and eyewitness accounts real or an elaborate hoax? What are the similarities between goblins, ETs, and other apparent cave dwellers that might be living among us, beneath us? Consider this and more on this episode of The Supernatural Explorer. Supernatural Explorers, welcome to episode 15, The Goblins of Hellier and Other Cave Dweller Mysteries. Look, I know I'm late to the party on the documentary Hellier, which has already finished its second season. I've only seen the first episode so far on Amazon Prime, and the possibility of real goblins existing is brand new to me. Never thought about goblins actually before this. So before I binge watch all two seasons, I wanted to explore goblins, other possible supernatural cave dwellers, and discuss some points from the first episode of Hellier. Then at the end of the show, I'll put my skills to work and do some distance visits and see what I feel. I'm going to attempt to connect with the Hellier Kentucky Goblin. And to close out the show, we'll see what the deal is with the mysterious Terry Wrist's window. More on that as we get into it if you haven't seen the show yet. So, let's go in. Hellier, Season 1, Episode 1. Well, first a series overview. A small crew of paranormal researchers find themselves in a dying cold town, where a series of strange coincidences leads them to a decades-old mystery with far-reaching implications. Uh, If I just saw Hellier and read that, I wouldn't really know that it was about goblins at all. I guess, (laughs) I guess, with the picture, I would. There's a there's a picture of what looks like a goblin that goes with that. So then, I guess that together would let me know. I only found out about the series from listening to other podcasts, and I hear them bring up Hellier, bring up Hellier. I'm kind of new to the whole supernatural paranormal thing, anyway, and I don't watch a lot of TV. So hearing people talk about it, that's kind of why I'm new to the party on this. And when I watched episode one, I had light bulbs going off in my head and I I wanted to stop, get my thoughts down and see what I kind of drew from it, pulled from it, what maybe I could add before I even saw the whole thing. So then the episode one overview. In 2012, A paranormal writer receives a panicked email from a man named David 
who claims that creatures are lurking on his property. After five years of twists, a team travels to Kentucky to find out what truly happened. Those creatures? The Goblins of Helia. Allegedly. Alright, so that's the lead-in. It starts with the director-slash-cameraman-slash-editor, Carl Pfeiffer, talking. Carl had me at the first word. Synchronicity. First word of the episode, first word of the season. He says synchronicities play throughout the whole case, and I'm hooked. Before they even mention anything about goblins. Because I live my life following synchronicities and signs. And now here I'm watching a brand new series to me. And the director, cameraman, editor Carl is talking about how synchronicities led him into this and come into play throughout the entire thing. So I was like, I I have to watch this from the synchronicity standpoint alone. From what I'm seeing as I'm watching it, very well done. Love the dramatic effect, the camera work, the music, all of it. So synchronicities and all that together so far, I'm already in. Then it switches to Greg Newkirk and Dana Matthews. They're a couple. Paranormal investigators. I think Greg and Dana are in Canada at this point because Dana's from Canada. And he gets an email through his old channels. He used to be an amateur ghost hunter with a bunch of his friends kind of joking around and they left the website up. The email was still active. He gets an email from a doctor living in Hellier, Kentucky with his wife and children about that little creatures are coming out of abandoned mine shafts, kids without hair, playing in the yard, not wearing any clothes, and they're feeling harassed by these goblins, ETs, not sure. And within the email, he mentions a Terry Rest, which again comes up later. Greg starts corresponding with this doctor, and the doctor sends him a picture of a footprint with three toes and pictures of what look like glowing beings behind trees. Those pictures aren't that clear. And the more they correspond back and forth, the more Greg and Dana are getting into it. If you watch it, if you remember watching it, the letter just seemed to be written too perfectly. I'm with Dana on this one. This just seems weird. It seems like they're getting us to go, but It almost feels like a setup of sorts. But then as the guy provides evidence, footprints, the pictures, they're like, all right, yeah, let's go check that place out. They're down to visit. They're like, all right, we're going to come out. We're going to meet with you. And the doctor's communication stopped. That was sucky. All that build up to then nothing. So then from there, they go on to miscellaneous projects. They start looking into... ETs, UFOs, abductions, and they're going to shoot a web series with a friend of theirs. And they call it, I love this, they call this the Alien Cave Base Task Force. They create this task force, I think, on Facebook because they hear about their secret cave entrances that lead to underground alien bases. And their friend knows of a cave entrance that he heard from a psychic in the the Brown Mountain, North Carolina area that supposedly is an entrance to an underground alien base. And there's like 170 miles from Hellier. They go there and they're filming and they check it out. And there's what clearly looks like 
definitely an entrance to a cave, but it's blocked off. There's big rocks in the way. They all believe that the rocks are put there to block the entrance and that it is an actual entrance, but they can't get in. They don't have dynamite. They're not going to blow it. (laughs) That's cool, but it didn't really lead anywhere. Then they get an email from the mysterious Terry Wrist. Terry Wrist somehow knows about them and Hellier and gives them coordinates that are very close to the Brown Mountain Cave entrance that they were just at. How does this guy know this stuff? Greg and Dana say very few people at all knew about Hellier 1 and about the Brown Mountain Cave thing too. And yet this mysterious Terry Wrist guy seems to know a lot about a lot of things. In one of his cryptic emails, the second and actually last cryptic email they got from him, he writes, Hellier was just a symptom. The ink and black are isolated still and the third order MIA. Bear in mind, for every door closed, a window must be opened. The door is closed. The window is open. Use the numbers. <laughs> Very cryptic. The numbers that he provided are actually coordinates that show approximately what they think is pointing out the cave entrance they had just been to. And how does he know this? How does Terry Riss know this? And the only research they were able to find on anyone else using the name Terry Rest which may or may not be the same person, was a gentleman who was allegedly part of a secret task force comprised of ex-military that would find and clear out secret underground ET bases. So far to show up to this point, I'd be curious to hear where you all stand if you saw it, or if we're just hearing it now. So far, I'm interested in everything. Everything's got my interest. But the terrorist guy with the secret underground ET bases... I think it's cool Terry Wrist seems to know a lot and points them to the entrance to the cave that they just went to and seems to know about Hellier. But then that he was part of a secret task force of ex-military that would clear out secret underground bases. For some reason, I'm not saying my BS meter went off or put up any red flags, but for some reason I was like, meh, that one didn't grab me for some reason. But looking back on the rest of the email, I'm curious... I want to spend a little time on the email. Let's go through the what he mentions. And I'm, I'm hoping, as I watch season one and season two, these things are addressed again and answered. This is where I stand on them. One, he says the door is closed, and they agree that the door he's talking about is the cave entrance they went to that's supposed to be a doorway to a secret underground base that was closed and that there were rocks in the way. They also said that the coordinates didn't exactly match with the cave entrance. They were in the vicinity. So are the coordinates for the window that he's talking about? And what will I feel when I distance connect with this window? Will it feel like a portal, a vortex, or something entirely different? So I wonder if they go into the window more in either season. Then what is the meaning of The ink and the black are isolated. Is that a good thing? Do we want those isolated? Maybe we want them together, like white on rice. I don't know. The ink and the black are isolated. 
doesn't mean a lot to me. My creative mind can maybe go into it more. Doesn't mean anything to me. Maybe somebody, an artist or somebody who works with inks can say what that means more. I'd love to hear from you. By the way, if you want to reach out on any of this stuff, the supernatural explorer at gmail.com or I'm on Instagram at the supernatural explorer. And the third thing, what's the deal with the third order? He says the ink and the black are isolated and third order MIA. If anybody's MIA, that usually seems like a bad thing. They're missing an action. Is the third order, his old military underground ET hunting group. Did they go missing? Or does it speak to some other group? This one caught my attention a little bit more. I actually wanted to look into it. And so I did. Went on Wikipedia. This is from Wikipedia. The term third order signifies, in general, lay members of religious orders who do not necessarily live in community and yet can claim to wear the habit and participate in the good works of some great order. When I read that... It sounds like people who seem like they'd be good enough to be priests, but they didn't go through the training, and so they make an order for them, like untrained priests. For some reason, this made me think of, you know, I did some work with people who thought they had attachments to them. I used to do some of that work, and still do if it comes up. And this reminds me of when I read Father Morth's book, Father and Morth from the Devil and Father and Morth on Netflix. Father and Morth, the Roman Catholic Church's number one exorcist who's now since crossed over. He wrote a book. I don't know how many books he wrote, but the book I read that he wrote, he used to talk of special lay people that when priests came across an exorcism that they couldn't handle, they would go to these lay people who could get the job done, special lay people. And two of these special lay people became saints and other patron saints of exorcisms or something like that. Are these special lay people who have a certain knowledge or belief or faith and can do special things that priests can't do? Is this a third order that he's talking about? Or again, is he just talking about his old military group? Those are just the thoughts I had around that. Again, if you have any thoughts on this, I'd love to hear them. Or maybe, again, maybe the show goes into it as I watch more. Terrorist disappears. I mean, his emails stop. Greg and Dana go on to do other things, miscellaneous projects. They look into the Hopkinsville UFO case. That's supposedly a famous case. I just heard about it two weeks ago. Maybe you're just hearing about it now. I want to say it happened, let's say, in the 50s or somewhere long ago like that, where ETs or goblins, glowing beings, I think there was a UFO crash or an unidentified flying object crash, followed by beings coming onto farmland and, in quotes, harassing a family. They felt harassed because who are these weird glowing ET slash goblin beings looking in our window? Shots were fired at them. They didn't kill or capture any of them. It was commented on a weird sound was made when they were hit with bullets. Supposedly a well-documented, believable case. And I heard it and I'm like, yeah, that sounds believable. 
I think I was recently listening to a podcast where a survivor, maybe the daughter of the person who shot one of the uh, ETs, goblins, maybe the daughter or granddaughter is still alive and she was on a podcast talking about it. And I know Greg and Dana talked to the woman. Light bulbs are going off in their head because they're like, this seems very similar to Hellier and goblins and what people are seeing. The pictures seem similar. The sound similar. The glowing seems similar. And they ask, are there any caves around here? And there is a cave. And where they believe the UFO to have crashed, landed, that's where a cave is. So there's, at least there's that similarity that provides food for thought. And then they start talking about, well, there's a cave system called the Mammoth Cave System that runs through much of Kentucky and through much of the Appalachian Mountains. And if you look, they showed a map. And if you look at a map, it's almost like a large portion of the eastern United States, some of the central United States, has this cave system running through it. And then they start going into talking about reports since the 50s also happening around cave areas up through what I just talked about, kind of like the easternish United States up the Appalachian Mountains. They stopped talking about reports since the 50s of similar sightings, three-toed creatures of different names. One of them may be of interest for you Stephen King fans out there. Instead of goblins, they called them Tommyknockers in one area. And I know there was a Stephen King book called Tommyknockers. Was that a book about goblin ETs? Is that bring up details for some of you. I didn't research it. One of the few Stephen King books I didn't read in a day. All this has light bulbs going off in my head. I believe I connect with the Sasquatch spirit that I believe led me to Tuscarora State Forest where Pandemonium is. At that point, I was very new to the game. I didn't know if there were any reports of Sasquatch activity in Tuscarora. And then I'm listening to a podcast, Strange Familiars, Tim, there's Pandemonium episodes. He's talking about having activity when he was doing his camp out with his friends. And he doesn't say it, but it sounds like Sasquatch activity. And I'm like, to me, that validated what I was experiencing. I don't think this area, this pandemonium area, is known for Sasquatch activity. So I'm having Sasquatch experiences. He's having Sasquatch experiences. And it makes me go to a map and look. And I believe that that's part of this cave system that runs up the United States. So that would make sense to me. Like, why are Sasquatch in certain areas? That at least lines up. Hmm. If Sasquatches are related to caves at all, that would make sense why they're appearing at Tuscarora State Forest Pandemonium. Because there's a cave system, I believe, that runs up through there, according to the map. And then I remember I was listening to a podcast, I know it was 2019, and I wish I could give credit, I can't remember. I was listening to an episode, and a gentleman was telling the story of there was this area that became flooded, maybe a dam broke or something like that. And soon after that, someone saw a Sasquatch walking from the area. And it was hypothesized that the reason they saw a Sasquatch is because there were caves in that area and the caves got flooded and the Sasquatch was going to look for a new home. That got me thinking, 
Wow. ETs, caves, goblins, caves, Sasquatch, caves. It all seems related. And then it further confirmed for me when people say, where there's UFO activity, there tends to be Sasquatch activity and vice versa. Where weird, strange things, paranormal, supernatural things go on of a certain variety, there are also this other variety. So then are the caves the hiding places for all these things? Or are the cave systems the doorways, the windows within the caves that allows these things to come through? Just ideas that came to me. I have to mention, (laughs) with the mention of ETs and Sasquatch in the same sentence, dating myself, this totally reminds me of the old school Six Million Dollar Man versus the Sasquatch, where the ETs were living in an underground cave, and they were with Sasquatch living in this underground cave. Just brought that up for me as a humorous thing. Oh, and another thing. Another parallel of the cave dwellers, I find it interesting that when they shot the goblins slash ETs at Hopkinsville, they mentioned the sound they made and that mm, there was no body count. They couldn't find any. And when I hear of people shooting and hitting Sasquatches, when people are telling the stories on podcasts, they mention a certain sound being made. And there's no body count there either. So that's interesting cave dweller parallel, which speaks to me more to the supernatural. Then this somehow led for me, I'm not on Reddit anymore really. I go there very rarely. But for some reason, right around this time, I found myself on Reddit and I happened to see user 87917819279 post... Yeah, it's an interesting tag. I wonder what that means. Post caves and missing children. I'll put it up on my webpage, thesupernaturalexplorer.blogspot.com. It's a picture of the cave system and a map of missing children and the overlap between the two. I didn't look into further details on it. I Just taking it at face value, I said, wow. Those are almost identical things. So caves and missing children are related in some way. I'm not drawing the correlation that goblins, ETs, or Sasquatch are responsible for this. The first place my mind went is if I was a little kid and I was out with my family and on some hike and I saw a cave, I would want to go check it out. And I'm sure a lot of caves are like mazes and maybe children just go exploring and then never find their way out. I don't know what the story is there. But there is a correlation. According to this picture, anyway, according to Reddit user 87917819927, that (laughs) there seems to be a correlation between caves and missing children. All right. Back to Hellier. Season 1, Episode 1. Greg and Dana now are asked by some production company to shoot a sizzle reel, it's called, some kind of internal promo to try and sell a series, something like that, not in the biz. So they're going to shoot a sizzle reel, new term maybe for some of you too, in a place called Cave City, Kentucky, which they said in the show is in 
in the middle of the mammoth cave system. Shoot the promo, they're done shooting, they're wrapping things up. Some little girl's watching the whole time. She comes over. And to me, the little girl's eyewitness testimony is the most reliable. She comes up to them and she goes, I hear you guys are monster hunters. Yeah, we are. And they strike up a conversation with her. And she says, you know, monsters come out of the, the caves. And they're like, really? And yeah, she's like, yeah, me and my parents see them all the time. I think Dane is the one who asks for a picture. And she draws first a three-toed goblin foot. And then she draws a goblin head. I think at first they thought someone put the little girl up to it and was pulling their leg. But when they realized nobody put the girl up to it and she was just kind of synchronicity, serendipitously coming up to them and reigniting the fire of goblins in caves or ETs in caves or whatever's coming out of the caves that people are seeing that have three toes and look a certain way. And I think from that point on, they're in. They're also at this point living in Cincinnati, Ohio, and Hellier is not that far from them. I want to say two or three hours. They're in. And they don't go into this, but I'm guessing at the same time, all the synchronicities were happening and falling into place for Carl as well, the director, cameraman, editor, and they're friends and they all get together and Hellier is born. All right. That's the opening to Hellier. Season one, episode one of Hellier. I'm in. Uh, As soon as I'm done recording this, I'm finally going to binge watch both seasons. Will there be a second show for me? It depends on what I see. I'll see if I'm moved. Maybe everything I'm bringing up here is already answered and this whole thing's moot. I hope it adds something. At the very least, I'm going to distance check a Hellier Goblin and Terry Wrist's window to see what I feel. So that at least adds something. I want to go into goblins and folklore and history because, again, I never thought of goblins. At most, I thought of orcs because I'm a Lord of the Rings fan and never even really seriously about orcs. I don't think there's really orcs. Maybe there are orcs in folklore. That'll be a new one for me. Definitely more of a Bigfoot, E.T., spirits, angels, archangels, that kind of thing. Anything spiritual. But goblins are new to me. So... I went on Wikipedia from European folklore and collected folk stories. A redcap is a type of goblin who dyes its hat in human blood in Anglo-Scottish border folklore. Nay, I can't make a positive spin on that one. A goblin who dyes its hat in human blood. That doesn't sound good. So, so far, I'm keeping score. And I'm not reading all of them. I'm just reading the ones that stood out to me. Goblins don't seem so great. Okay. Here's another one. Hobgoblins are friendly trickster goblins from English, Scottish, and Pilgrim folklore and literature. Even more surprising than the fact that hobgoblins are friendly tricksters, because from watching Spider-Man, I thought hobgoblin was bad. To find out they're friendly and to find out pilgrims believed in hobgoblins too, I don't know why I find that surprising. So, one for one, you got the human blood hat soaking bad <laughs> goblins and friendly tricks to good goblins so far. One in one. Here's another one. The benevolent goblin, that sounds good, from Gesta Romanorum, England. Okay, 
I don't know what that is, but something to do with England and benevolent. I like it. Here's another one. The Earl King is a benevolent goblin from German legend. All right, so now we're two and two. Bad goblins, good goblins. Ooh, King Gob from a gypsy folktale. King Gob doesn't say if it's good or bad. Mm, I tend to think of kings as good. You will have to decide for yourself where you put that one. I tend to think of kings as good. But I know not all kings are good, so... All right, then it goes on to say, Goblin-like creatures have also appeared in other cultures. Muki mythology speaks of a goblin who lives in caves. Well, I like that because that supports the goblin in caves thing. So if that's a mythological thing, you have the mythology of then. And whether it's mythology or fact for today, uh, individual results vary. People are going to believe what they want. I wonder if any evidence comes up in uh, season one and season two as well. Besides the footprints, the footprints are pretty cool. Here we go. Goblins sometimes became identified with jinn in Islamic culture. This I love because I've heard the term jinn used before. I feel like I've had experience encounters with jinn spirits and I don't know a lot about jinn. Uh, I think they're also known as genies. And I like that it says in Islamic culture, because now I get to consult a holy book, the Holy Quran. This is the first time I'm actually looking into it. So let's see what the Holy Quran says about the jinn and how they're related. There are parts where jinn and men are addressed equally, and I'm guessing it's Muhammad who's addressing these people, the prophet Muhammad. Jinn and men are addressed equally. So I don't know what pictures you picture in your mind for that. I picture a group of beings, human or otherwise, gathered and they're being addressed. I don't know if 50% are standing off to one side and 50% off to the other, if they're intermingled and being addressed because they're known to each other and they coexist in some way. Then it goes on to say, man was created from mud and clay. That's not a far stretch. That seems like a holy book thing. Jinn was created from the smokeless fire as partners with God. Ooh, that sounds supernatural. Smokeless fire as partners with God. I, when I hear partners with God, I think of angels and archangels and guardian angels and that, stuff like that. So that, to me, puts the jinn on a supernatural level. I don't want to say higher or lower, but to me, it puts it on a higher vibrational level than humans. More capabilities. Um, we weren't created from the smokeless fire. <laughs> <laughs> so, in another place it says, Jinn are intelligent and have free will. Well, that makes sense. I think everything, every being has free will. So that jives with me. And then it goes on to say Satan is a Jinn. Um, to me, that doesn't paint Jinn as bad. Paint Satan as bad. If you believe in Satan, you know, or there could be a, such a thing as Satan or the devil. Whatever powers he has, it could stand the reason that the Jinn has those powers as well. That's what that speaks to me. Can appear, disappear. You can't kill Staten. Um, stuff like that. And I imagine when it says Satan is a jinn, I could uh, imagine people saying Satan appeared as this, Satan is appeared as that. So I can imagine then jinn appearing as different things physically. That's where my mind goes with that. 
hopefully lots of food for thought, information. It's all new to me. Um, at this point, thinking if the jinn are related to goblins at all. Goblins do seem to be supernatural. Jinn seem to be supernatural. It all comes down to belief. I don't think we're ever going to find one. I don't think we're ever going to find a Sasquatch, meaning like a dead one where people can examine it. So it goes on, do you believe people's sightings? Do you believe the sighting of a little girl and her stories and the pictures she draws? Uh, you know, it's whatever you believe. All right, that's all I have to talk about Hellier Season 1, Episode 1, and all I have to say on goblins and goblin-like creatures and cave dwellers. Let's do the distance work now. Let's go in. Taking it down a few notches, I'm going to go into my zone. And first, I'm going to ask to be connected with a Hellier goblin. Any being that is understood and known as a Hellier goblin in the sense, in the way that people understand that. Want to be connected with one of those, please. Hmm. This is interesting. I feel most of my energy in the lower parts of my legs. Heavy, dense, very firm and balanced on the ground and with that sensation I I feel comfortable at peace but slightly traps a heavy word I feel restricted I guess I feel slightly restricted and thoughts that come to me with that is that if these goblins ETs or whatever they are, spend most of their time in caves. If you think of rocks as grounding, then you could imagine how rocks in the earth underneath in a cave system, and that energy might be very grounding as well. And if you live among that, you wouldn't be surprised that they would be tuned into that and that their energy might feel a little heavy, a little grounded, a little rock-like because that seems to be their uh, main environment. Because it feels constrictive in a way, I'm going to go in and reconnect and see if that constrictedness loosens up in any way. By all of the accounts, it felt good, uh, not unhealthy, but I'm curious about that restrictedness. So I'm going to go back in. This just came to my mind. I've heard people on other podcasts talking about folklore. And I've heard it said that if you find yourself in a land of, I just want to say fairies, I don't remember if it was fairies, if something magical happens and you find yourself in a land of fairies, don't eat anything. Because if you eat something, then you're kind of trapped there. All right, let's say that has some truth in it. You partake in the vibration of a place. By taking that vibration within you, then it changes, somehow changes your vibration. If I'm going to believe in supernatural, paranormal stuff, that can make rational sense to me. 
whether I believe in a fairyland or not. If I did believe in one, that, yeah, I could buy that. That would make sense to me. Imagine the flip thing happens. You're a jinn, created from the fire, partners with God. Seemingly, I mean, in some religions, Satan's the fallen angel. So if Satan didn't fall, Satan's an angel. The jinn are like Satan. So you could say jinn are angelic-like. But let's say some of them came here at some point or found themselves here at some point and ate the food here. I know it's just a tale I'm spinning in my head of theories and possibilities, but if goblins are jinn and they partook of something here and my energy feels heavy and feels a little trappedish, maybe they're just making the best of a situation that they don't know how to move forward from. And it would seem, if, if you're going to take a certain testimony and believe it, then it seems to me to be reasonable to go along the lines of, like the example, you believe they were shot at and maybe injured but not killed because they can't be killed. Because if they could be killed, stand to reason somebody would have found a body of something. So if you believe in these things and you're unable to reconcile why they haven't been found by saying, well, they can't be killed, at least not on this realm, they would disappear. Or so. I don't know. I don't know how to fill in the blanks there. But if you go along the lines that they can't be killed, and then they are kind of very supernatural. And maybe they're kind of stuck here. That came to me with the download. Let me see what the energy feels like now. And now it's brought to my attention about the glowing. What glows? Yeah, fireflies, some stuff in the sea glows. But for a being to glow? I mean, I know a lot of people are amazed by eye shine or eye glow. Seeing that as opposed to an actual, what's known to be a physical animal and a reflection of the eye. Eye shine and eye glow really gets people amped up. Yeah, you got a glowing being. <laughs> it's not just the eye shine, but the being is glowing. That to me also speaks to the jinn coming from fire, supernatural, magical, angelic-like. And then you'd have to ask yourself, why is an angelic being visiting here in the physical with the potential of being misunderstood and shot at? Why would they do that? They definitely seem to like the children. And the vibe I was getting from watching Hellier is it wasn't a creepy thing. They were interested in the children. They, When the child saw them, they were playing in their yard, in the playground, playing, running around. I think she thought of them as children, bald, naked children, the size of children. I think that's the way the girl thought of them. There's good and bad everything. If these goblins, at least the ones that were at the house, so-called harassing, because they were tapping on the girl's window, maybe out of playful child interest, maybe. Because if they're playing like children, then that's a childlike thing to do. Then maybe these are some good Jin-ish, supernaturalist, angelic-ish beings that somehow got trapped here and they're looking to go back to where they belong. 
Or do they belong here? I don't know. Food for thought. I'm going to go in one more time because uh, I'm really finding this interesting and I'm going to see what else I can feel. All right. Now I feel energy populating more of my body, expanding out in a very light and bright way. Almost feels limitless. But even within all that, I feel like my feet are still pretty heavy with energy. So it seems like they can experience the spectrum of what is possible, but they can't just float off into the higher spectrum, the higher vibration. Even though they can experience that glow in the dark and all that and experience very high vibrational levels that give off light, they can't fully go into the light, fully ascend. Or they come through that window, Terry Wrist's window that he speaks of. It seems like a good time to go check that out. I'm glad I met this, what people identify as a goblin. Mm, I'm okay with the goblin name, I think. For some reason, I want to call them imps because to me that has a more positive connotation. But goblin sits okay with me because of the some of the positive benevolent goblins that were in folklore. So I can go with goblin. I know I want to change names sometimes, but uh, I can stick with the goblin name on this one. All right, let's go check out Terry Wrist's window. I really only have one word to describe what I felt, and that was expansive. However, I normally close my eyes and experience myself and whatever that feels like, which as I've said before is usually in some kind of energetic light combination of flow but the size of my body. When I asked to be connected with the window, I just felt expansive. No sense of me, really. And a sense of something so large I couldn't feel the size, shape of it. If I'm feeling that from Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, scientific related, not hypothetical, the closer you get to that, the source, the window, the more you would feel it, the more powerful it becomes. So if I'm feeling this expansiveness here, I wonder if anybody who knows how to tune in, who knows how to let go, still their minds, their energy, tuned into the energy at the location of the window, that it may or may not be a physical place, but I have no doubt that it has a certain energy structure, signature, and it's not a far stretch for me, because I just did two parts on vortexes, portals, places of power, and this is not quite a vortex, it's not quite a portal, it's not quite a place of power, it's... I like window. I mean, if you're in somewhere, place with a roof and walls, and, and you come to a window and look out the window, when you're in the place, you could say your vision of your world is that place. Now just take any window where you can stick your head out the window, 
and what becomes your vision of your expansiveness, your possibility. How high does your gaze and your spirit feel like it can rise looking into the clouds and the heavens versus when you were just inside a place? Um, I imagine that definitely would do something to you mentally, emotionally. And I imagine if you could relax further into it, it might do something for you spiritually as well. An experience to be had. I really hope when I go back and binge watch like crazy, season one and two, that they revisit those coordinates in some way, in some energetical, spiritual, psychic way. I think that's it. I don't feel moved. I hope I covered everything. I hope this was thought-provoking. I'd be curious where everyone lands on this. And if you haven't seen Hellier, then where you land on it when you're done seeing Hellier. So I don't know if there's going to be a part two. It depends on what they show, what they have. I would love for there to be a part two because based on season one, episode one, I love this show. I know I don't watch a lot of TV on demand or otherwise, really. So when I find a show that I am hooked on already and want to watch, that's really exciting for me. So I hope there's another show on Hellier. And I don't know what show's next yet. I have a bunch of ideas, but I want to be led. I want a synchronicity, a sign, or at least to feel it move in my heart. I have a lot of ideas in my head, but I want something to come through my heart or some kind of synchronicity. So your guess is as good as mine on what the next show is going to be. But until then, I hope everyone is doing well, peaceful, blissful, having a good life. Till next time, everyone, peace.